0: They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors.
1: Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinebaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations in the New England Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. David Grafton. He is the Professor of Islamic Studies and Christian-Muslim Relations. Did I get all that right? You got it. Excellent. At Hartford Seminary, which is right down the road. So first of all, welcome to Connecticut. Thank you very much. It's
2: and great to be for, here.
1: Thanks for being on the show. So I think we met probably about 10 years ago, I think-ish, when I was doing my SDM at, uh, at Philly.
2: Yeah, at LSP.
1: So you. Yeah, and
2: I was I was the director of graduate studies. I think at the time when you were there, and yep, trying to work you through, right? Exactly. (laughs) And now you're here, which is
1: great for us. So we're thrilled you're here in New England and in Connecticut and with us today. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: So you, I think to begin, just let us our audience know a little bit about your background, uh, some of uh, the things that you places that you've been just to give them a little context and, and what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, sure. So how long do you have? Because this could be a rambling story and it's a nice <laughs> sojourn. but I, well, think, I, th- I think people will find it interesting. So I'm an ELCA pastor. Um, I was ordained in 1994. Um, so I've been on the roster for quite a while. My story is that I grew up in uh downriver of Detroit, and my home congregation—a shout out to St. Paul Lutheran in Dearborn, Michigan—it's my home congregation. Nice. Had a great experience growing up there uh, in the youth group and in the in the church. Uh, went off to Capitol University in Columbus, Ohio. I, uh, as a Michigander, I often refer to Columbus or Capital as the other school in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> um, if you're from Michigan, you'll get that joke. So. Anyway, I um, met my wife there and decided I wanted to study um, Middle Eastern studies uh, and Islam. I was a history major cool. and, a, and a cross-cultural studies major. And I didn't quite know why. I was just interested. And my advisor at the time, uh, Dr. Howard Wilson, uh, who was a great mentor of mine, uh, he knew right away why I wanted to study Islam and Christian Muslim, and, and, and the Middle East, and he, he informed me that Dearborn Michigan was the largest community of arabic speaking people in the in the united states. Oh, okay. Wow. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't I didn't know that. So but you had,
1: but you had a hunch somewhere. So that I a, had
2: a well obviously, you know. Right. So that that I propelled me down a path where you know, I asked the question why? Why didn't I know about uh these communities in Dearborn and in Detroit and the great history of the Arab American community in, in Michigan. So anyway, from there, I uh, went on to St. Paul and did my MDiv at Luther Seminary, uh, where I did a couple of independent studies on Islam in the United States. Uh, after I graduated there, I went. I got my first call in New Jersey, the New Jersey Synod, right around the time, uh, 1993, in the first World Trade Center bombings. Mm. And I was fortunate at the time to have a colleague uh, at the Reformed congregation in town who was a former missionary to Iraq. Mm. So he and I began a a project together, an ecumenical project, where we began taking congregations to local mosques in northern New Jersey. And this was uh, something that was quite new. At, At that point, I decided very quickly that I wanted to go on and study uh, Islam and Christian-Muslim relations further. So I uh, ended up going to England, Birmingham, the University of Birmingham in, in England, a place called Celio Colleges, where the ELCA had actually sent a number of former missionaries and missionaries to study Islam. And what, what was incredible about that experience was that the faculty and student body ratio were 50% Muslim and 50% Christian from around the world. Wow. So we had had Muslim and Christian faculty members and Muslim and Christian students. And I was the only American in the whole program, which was actually the best thing about it. I mean, I I I
1: actually,
2: yeah, it was cool. I actually had to, 1997, I had to schlep down to the Birmingham police station and get fingerprinted uh, because I was not a member of the EU, and I was not part of the uh, British Commonwealth. And so as a student, uh, I, I was uh, in a special category. So <laughs> I, I was also, as an international student, tested for my English language ability, uh, found, <laughs> found that I was spelling things incorrectly. I put my Es before my R's, and so they had, <laughs> they had, they had to correct that out of me. Um, so that was a great experience. I, I uh, cut my teeth in Islamic studies, working with Muslims and Christians. From there, uh, I had the great fortune of uh, getting a call with Glo- the Unit for Global Mission in Cairo, Egypt. Wow. And served, served at uh, St. Andrew's United Church, which is an international congregation. Wonderful place. Uh, I highly recommend people uh, getting into relationship with St. Andrew's. Um, say, I'm not sure the website, but it's a small congregation that serves English speaking expatriates Hmm. who are in the country for their job, their work. Uh, They may uh, be part of a diplomatic corps, teach in a university or uh, work for an oil company. And, And we provided word and sacrament ministry for those folk. But we also had a huge refugee ministry. We had refugees from around the Horn of Africa Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, uh, who all came to Cairo because Cairo is an office of the commissioner for refugees. So the refugees would come into Cairo seeking uh, protection, seeking asylum. And we were one of the faith-based organizations that provided ministries for these refugees primarily educational and financial uh, resources. What was great about St. Andrews was that um, we had an adult education program and a children's program, but we were the only community that hired Muslims as a part of our staff. Okay. So we had um, teachers and administrators yeah, cool. who who were – Muslims from the Sudan or from Somalia. But we also had, uh, you know, Christians from various tribes, and the tribes were aligned with a particular denomination, Christian denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were uh, Newer, they were predominantly Presbyterian. If they were Sholok, they were predominantly Catholic. So we had this uh, mixture of peoples and nationalities and religions all working in this small little space and you learn very quickly about our common humanity, people in need who are struggling to survive and looking for a brighter future. Yeah. Uh, it was great. It was an incredible experience. Uh, so from there I, I spent four years as the pastor there and then moved to the Egyptian Presbyterian seminary where I was the director of graduate studies there for a number of years, Mm. uh, before I got the call uh, in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. spent eight years at the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia as the director of graduate studies and then uh, vice president for administration there. 2016, I received an uh, opportunity to come to Hartford Seminary at the Duncan Black McDonald Center to take up a position as a the. Christian faculty member in Islamic studies and Christian-Muslim relations. So I've been here since 2016, fall 2016. The unique thing about Hartford Seminary is it originally has its roots in the UCC. It's a congregationally-based right. seminary, but has been a freestanding seminary. And it is the oldest study center for the study of Islam in the United States. Wow. It began back in the 1880s and 1890s. And currently, is uh, right now the only accredited institution of higher learning for Muslim chaplaincy. So oh. one of our one of our programs is we we provide training, an academic degree for Muslims who want to be credentialed as a military hospital or um, university chaplain. Wow. So our, gra- our Muslim graduates are serving as chaplains in um, Georgetown, Princeton, yeah. uh, uh, Cornell, Duke, North Carolina, um, all over.
1: Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, a lot of our folks that, that connect with us here at the podcast might not have a lot of exposure to uh, Muslim folks in their community or in their experience. We'd just like to pick your brain a little bit on... Uh, maybe some ways that are helpful as far as uh, relating to other human beings who might have a different religious <laughs> background yeah. than ourselves.
2: Yeah, I've, that's critical. I mean, obviously, we, yeah, we live in a country and in a world now where things are much smaller. The United States is, is certainly a religiously diverse and plural uh, country. We have assumptions about who we are as a country and what we right. look like, and that's changing, of course. When people say to me, you know, I, I don't know anything about Muslims or Islam, I've never met a Muslim, my usual response to that is, well, you think you've never met a Muslim, but you have. Right. right. It's simply because we have an image in our mind of what Muslims are based upon images in the media, and, and a lot of that, unfortunately, is based upon foreign policy issues, what's going on overseas, But in actuality, in the United States, um, the vast majority of Muslims would be unrecognizable to us simply visibly (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, because uh, they would not have any markers. We often think about women wearing hijabs, which is a common religious marker for female Muslims. But the significant number of, of American Muslim females do not wear any form of head covering. So, you may encounter female Muslims and, and not know it all the time, right? Yeah, right. Sure. It's, only, it's only when you're thinking about the hijab that you think, oh, that, that, that must be a Muslim. And in terms of, of males, the standard for Muslims is uh, of dress is modesty. And modesty looks very differently in, in a variety of different cultures and contexts. So the way that Muslims dressed is is to be modest, and that, that can take mm. any number of, of – uh, uh, it, it can look very differently. So the other thing about Islam in America that most Anglos aren't aware of is that the single largest ethnic community of Muslims in the United States are African Americans. Right. So – they they make up, depending on who's doing the counting, they make up anywhere from 24 to 40% of all Muslims in America, which means that a quarter to at least a third of all Muslims are African American. And uh, Philadelphia was a great example. That's one of the kind of centers of African American Muslim Islam. And there's all different kinds of African-American Muslim communities. So most Americans, when they think about Islam, they think about Arabs and what Arabs look like in Arab dress. And Arabs really aren't even the largest ethnic community. It's South Asian Americans, yes. Right, you know? right. Um, so Im- immigrant Muslim or, or those from South Asia, predominantly India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they, they make up the largest community of immigrant Muslims that we have in the United States, and they, they don't speak Arabic at all. <laughs> <laughs> for
0: someone who might not be familiar with the Muslim community, what would be good first steps for someone to educate themselves a little bit more than what they see and what's portrayed in the media? Are there resources, websites you know, that yeah. folks can go to uh, to figure that out a little bit?
2: Yeah. So the first thing that has to be said is, in my experience, uh, Muslims in America would be excited and very much engaged in anyone who wants to learn more about who they are as a people, as a community of faith. They very much want that. So whenever someone asks me, what do Muslims think about this or that? I usually say, well, why don't we ask them? <laughs> um, let's find out. And and all you Answer have to that. do is, yeah, all you have to do is go onto a, you know, do Google search a Muslim community in your area or your region, and you'd be surprised at how many, uh, communities there are. In fact, there's a couple of websites, that are quite interesting. One is called Salat Omatic, uh, which will find Muslim communities of of different ethnicities and nationalities or. Um, uh, nationalities, backgrounds in, in your area. The other one is MosqueFinder.com. And Muslims themselves use these, these websites as, when they're traveling and they want to go someplace for prayer. They'll, they'll use these websites. So direct conversation with Muslims is the, is the best place to go. I mean, Muslims are very much interested in talking for themselves about what they believe, resetting the bar in terms of, of how people experience Muslims. Uh, An interesting fact about that is that after 9-11, there was a a spike in the number of younger female Muslims who began taking on the hijab, meaning that they they started wearing the veil uh, the year after 9-11, so about uh, 2012, 2013, 2014. They started putting on the veil, which is in many ways, counterintuitive. One would think that Muslims were scared and they wanted to hide and not be publicly noted. And the research showed through interviews that these younger Muslim women actually wanted to be noticed and they wanted people to ask them about their faith because yep. they were self-identifying publicly as a Muslim. Right. And they wanted to engage with people to talk with them about their faith. And that, that's my experience as well. Uh, Muslims do want... To know, they want to speak for themselves. They want to engage in conversations. They want to be part of the of the civic uh, landscape and discourse. Now, in terms of resources, um, for your Lutheran listeners, the, the ELCA website has a whole section under the uh, Lutheran-Muslim relations section, which is uh, under ecumenical and, and interreligious relationships. There's a whole whole series of resources there for individuals and congregations to use, particularly some uh, bulletin inserts called talking points that can be utilized um, each week. There, There's a whole study guide. So uh, a really good resource that just came out uh, that was done by the Lutheran Muslim and Lutheran Jewish consultative panels of the ELCA is a book that came out in 2016 called Engaging Others Knowing Ourselves, a Lutheran Calling in a Multi-Religious World. It's a great resource, primarily because what the panels did in putting the publication together was they, they put a call out to congregations and individuals to send in their experiences of working with other religious communities in their area doing variety of kind of ministries. So there's all these case studies about uh, different Lutheran congregations working with Muslim communities in in this case and the wide variety of uh, parameters that that takes as well as some some kind of sociological and theological questions that christians might have about islam and how to engage muslims i think that's a really good resource but the the ELCA website is is kind of a good start for a variety of different kinds of options for individuals or congregations who are looking for resources.
0: That's a very good resource. And for those who are listening, uh, what we will do is put all of these links in our show notes so you don't have to go back and try to listen. Uh, So we'll have links in our show notes so you can go directly to these resources and look them up and, and hopefully utilize them in your personal life, but also in your congregation.
1: David, when you encounter uh, Christian communities that are interested in engagement, uh, what type of questions are they asking or things that you find interesting or maybe the average person wouldn't maybe consider off the top of their head?
2: Well, I find that when congregations come to me and are interested in learning more about Islam or they want to do some kind of a program, Uh, or get to know their local uh, Muslim community, they either don't know what questions to ask, or they're afraid to publicly ask the questions. So for example, I usually, when I work with congregations, my goal is to get Christian congregations directly engaged with the Muslim community. But quite often they're either afraid or embarrassed about the particular questions that they have, because they either don't feel like they they know anything about Islam, but they're embarrassed to ask particular questions. And so uh, I get all kinds of questions uh, from from individuals who are w- desperately want to know more about Muslims and about Islam, um, but they're afraid to ask, and they don't want to appear to be, Islamophobic or racist, they don't want to be put into a, poli- a particular political category, but they have genuine questions. Sure. And so I, I'm very open to, to kind of respond, to responding to those, those questions. But the questions tend to, f- to focus around two major categories, and the first is about gender, about gender roles and about women. Why do women wear the hijab? And do do Muslim women feel uh, oppressed? Um, do are they are they do they feel free in their religion? That that mm. probably in the United States is the number one area that that concerns the Christian communities I'm involved in, and that has to do with all kinds of perceptions about the hijab and perceptions about uh, the role gender roles. The second area that I get all kinds of questions about has to do with violence and what does the Quran teach about violence? Um, and re- that obviously is related to uh, our the war on terror and the yeah. result the results of 9/11 and um, our our foreign policy issues.
1: It's like asking, what's the Bible say about
2: violence? Exactly. And right. and I often, yeah, I often remind folks that, uh, you know, bef- for example, before you ask a question, put Christianity in in place of Islam and then ask the question and see how you would respond. So, um, for example, what does Christianity teach about women in ministry? Well, depends uh, who you ask. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we belong to a, a tradition that has has been ordaining women and has a presiding bishop for a women. Right. But, right. but we're, we're not the only voice. We, there are other major denominations that do not do that. Right. So it depends on who you ask and it depends on who you're talking to, to explain what the Quran may say about this or that, or what people may believe. And that that's the, that's the key is that in this age of, um, uh radio talk shows and conservative talk shows and cable news networks we've re- we've essentialized islam into a a monolithic entity and and we you know we forget much like my experience at st andrews you know it's about people right um the religion is is the expression of 1.6 billion muslims who express their spirituality and if it's one thing that I've discovered along the way, uh, as, as a clergy, as a, a committed Christian, there are people out there who, for whom Islam works. It makes sense. It, makes, it gives value to their life. And so to simply um, dismiss it, a form of political extremism is, is to simply miss the point that, that for a lot of people, this is providing spiritual sustenance. Mm. Um, and and so, you know, as a pastor, that, that makes me curious, uh, why is that? And so being in a classroom with Muslim students, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about, um, spirituality and how God gives, uh, and provides guidance for people's lives, uh, that that's not just something you can dismiss as as political rhetoric or community that that is um, brainwashed. When you engage with Muslims directly and have relationships with Muslims directly, you you quickly be, understand that that God works in their lives in ways that's very different than ours, but but it's very sincere. That's helpful.
0: That is very very helpful, and I want to thank you for for bringing up some of those questions and. And I don't know if it's if we have an opportunity here um, to talk about some of the questions that you did bring up because I'm sure some of our listeners do have those questions or if that's a, another opportunity for uh, a resource that, that we can direct folks to so you know talk a little bit about the head coverings and a little bit about the you know the violence in the Quran you know just is, is there we, we don't want to take too much time on it, but is there a way that we, you, you could talk about that just? to give some general information um, to satisfy some curiosity some from, from some of our listeners?
2: Yeah, sure. So let, let's take those two categories, uh, uh, gender roles in women and women then, and then violence. So obviously the hijab or the, the head covering is probably the most clearly identifiable marker for Muslim women. Um, it sets them aside publicly. I often hear among um, Christians in congregations who talk about the burqa. They they say you know, they want to know about the burqa. Now the burqa itself is a particular Afghani tribal cultural head covering that women wear that that covers from their head all the way down and and goes over their whole head and and prohibits even their face from being exposed. That that's particularly Afghani and. A particular tribal area of Afghanistan. Um, that Muslims in other parts of the country don't wear that. Um, the other common thing that we as Americans have experienced is the niqab, which is a Saudi uh form of dress, which is where the head is covered, but you can see the eyes.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: that's another form, but that's not used by the majority of Muslim women who cover. They would simply use the hijab, which is a headscarf, and the headscarf could be anything from a simple uh, scarf that 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 covers the hair and 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 then goes down to the shoulders. But you will find Muslim African American Muslim women, or sp- specifically Senegalese Muslim women, who wear. Very ornate, brightly colored scarves that that match their outfit, um, and they have a different scarf for every outfit. Now, some of my colleagues would say, "Well, that's not modesty. That's actually drawing attention to the to their outfit." But you know, we we're people. We're, we some people like to dress nice, right? So right, right. that becomes a per, that becomes a particular uh, mode of expressing of women expressing their identity through the clothes that they wear. Now, when you ask Muslim women, why do you cover your head? The research shows in interviews that women cover their head because they believe it is that they are called by God to express their modesty in public, to be a public marker of, of modesty and piety. And part of that is covering your hair. Now, In the United States, most Protestants, most Protestant women don't cover their hair. But of course, Paul talks about women cover your hair when you're in worship, right? When you're in public. So when you go to some pre-Vatican II Catholic churches or even Orthodox churches in the United States, women still cover their hair. They will put some kind of a covering on their hair. So that's the expression of it. And um, I find that Muslim women are very interested in sharing with you their stories about why they cover their hair and the kind of hijab that they wear. Um, It's not a question that one should be embarrassed to ask Muslim women. They would be very delighted to, to talk with them about that sincerely. Um, Let's see. What were some of the other uh, questions?
0: The violence found in the Quran.
2: Yeah. So you'll find all kinds of references out there on the internet and in the media about the violence of the Quran there was a a book that was written in 2015 by Glenn Beck Mm -hmm. called it is about Islam and Glenn Beck's argument was that he said well all these people are arguing about what Islam is and we have Al Qaeda and we have ISIS and we have people telling us that no Islam is peaceful Islam means peace well he said I'm gonna read the Quran and his conclusion was that the Qur'an read and did exactly what the extremists said that the Qur'an did. In other words, that he simply took at face value what the extremists were were quoting from the Qur'an and then read it and said, this is exactly what they say it is. Therefore, the Qur'an is about violence. The Qur'an is about infidels. Now, the reality is, of course, I mean, if you had someone coming to your office saying, I want to learn more about Lutheranism, uh, you, you probably wouldn't point them directly to Leviticus 21. <laughs> right. right.
0: Probably not, right. No, right, no.
2: Or, or you wouldn't even say, here, read Revelation 19. Yeah. You would point them to particular passages that, you, that I, as a Lutheran pastor, would think would reflect how we understand Scripture. like Romans 8 Romans five, Matthew five, right? John yep, yep. three, sixteen, right? Those are those are the places that you would send people and that would reflect your understanding of the Bible and of the Christian faith that are not found in chapter one. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right, right, they're, they're right. Mi- they're, it's, right. Mixed, it's mixed in with the Bible. And you so you have to know where to go. You have to have someone like we found last week in the Acts text, Acts eight, you know when the ethiopian says how how do i know unless someone shows me so for it's the same way in the quran you know these particular passages about violence often called the sword verses are in particular places and they and they point to particular moments in time in the life of the prophet muhammad and his engagement with the meccans which is a whole story but for muslims when they open the Qur'an, they don't go to the sword verses. They don't go to those particular passages. They're not waking up in the morning reading about the infidel and how are we going to treat the infidel this week. Right? Right. They go primarily to the Fatiha, which is the first passage of the Qur'an, or the most common uh, phrase, the Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim, God, the compassionate, and the merciful, which is the way that they give. You know, they open every prayer in the name of God, the compassionate and the merciful. And that is the primary reference by which Muslims would direct their prayers and engage with God, that God is the compassionate and the merciful. Every prayer cycle begins with bismillah rahman rahim So that's a very different way of thinking about God, or as in Arabic, Allah, than you hear from Glenn Beck's book, that that. Mm-hmm. The Qur'an is violent, right?
1: Right, right. Could you say a little bit, just a little bit more about uh, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, just because people will know that name, but probably not know a lot about him and the history of of development around him?
2: Yeah, so the Prophet Muhammad uh, was, was born in Mecca around 570 A.D. Um, in an era in which the arabian peninsula was sandwiched between two major empires mm-hmm. the the persian sassanian empire and the byzantine empire the persian empire was zoroastrian uh a state religion and the byzantine empire was a Chris- christian state religion and those two those two empires had been doing what empires do ad infinitum right they they were duking it out and the arabian peninsula was sandwiched in between that and When Muhammad uh, was born, he was known as being a, a, a very pious man, a very pious young man, and would spend a lot of time praying in the desert. The people around him in Mecca and the tribes around him were a mixture of communities, of religious communities. The most prominent was communities of polytheists. They followed gods and goddesses, both of the Arabian Peninsula, particular gods and goddesses there, but also uh, gods of, um, that we would be familiar with in our, the Hebrew scriptures, the Baals, uh, mm. uh, if you will, uh, those gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East. That was the single largest community of, of polytheists. But there were also Jews, Arab Jews, living in and around Mecca, And there were Arab Christians uh, living around Mecca. We know of that from a number of stories uh, from the life of of Muhammad. But Muhammad received uh, what Muslims believe to be a call from God to begin preaching, preaching God's word as a prophet, that there's only one God and that there is a day of judgment. And so people need to prepare for the day of judgment. So Muhammad was... uh, very much opposed by the Meccans, primarily because he preached against polytheism. He preached against the worship of gods and goddesses and idols, and his hometown of Mecca was a major center for polytheistic worship, and there is in Mecca what is called the Kaaba, that central edifice, that house of worship that, according to Muslim tradition, Abraham built Uh, with his son Ishmael as the first house of worship. Mm -hmm. And at the time of Mecca, it was filled with idols, all kinds of idols. And so Muhammad was preaching to the Meccans that they should not uh, be worshiping these idols. Now, Mecca was a center of worship and a shrine. And so people would come from all around the Arabian Peninsula to worship. And it was an economic center, so, for Muhammad to preach against these idols was uh, threatened the eco- economic mm-hmm. livelihood of the Meccans, and so they sure. didn't like that. So, right. the first the first controversies between Muhammad and his followers and the Meccans had to do with this center of worship, and um, the Meccans not wanting to to give up polytheism, not only because they they were they didn't believe in the one God, but because it had economic implications. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Right, as religion right. often does. Often yep. how it goes. Right. Yep.
2: right. So uh, for Muslims, Muhammad is is a prophet who preaches God's word, and and for Muslims, he is not the only prophet. He's simply the last prophet, the seal of the prophets, and all other prophets before him preach the same message. There's only one God, and God is to be worshipped and followed. Uh, to prepare oneself for the Day of Judgment. So for Muslims, according to some traditions, uh, there's 240,000 prophets that God sent throughout the world. uh, And they include, for Muslims, many names for whom would be familiar to Jews and Christians, Adam, uh, Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, uh, Jacob, David, Solomon, John and and of course Jesus Jesus is an important prophet in in Islam and in the Quran who has a particular role to play.
0: What about uh the Muslim view of of Jesus as the son of God? You said an important prophet, is it the same as important that Christians would see Jesus or is it a little different?
2: Yeah, it would be it would be very different in that for Christians Jesus uh, as the I- incarnation of God, as the, as the New Testament describes, the son of God, has a particular salvific role to play. So Muslims would not agree with that. They would not believe that, that Jesus is anything more than a prophet. In fact, the Quran says very clearly, you know, Christians do not exceed the bounds of your religion, that, that Jesus is no more than a prophet. Mm-hmm. So the Quran is very clear that Jesus is an important prophet who preaches uh, and shares God lo- God's love but but is nothing more than that. So in my mind and in my classrooms when we have Christians and Muslims together that's a really good conversation to have.
1: Sure. Yep.
2: And it doesn't break down into religious vitriol it provides an opportunity for Christians and Muslims around Jesus, <laughs> yeah. Jesus of the Bible and Isa of the Quran. Who is he? And to to have Muslims and Christians describe who Jesus is. So on the one hand, Jesus can be a unifying uh, person mm-hmm. in that he provides very important spiritual, ethical, and moral guidance for for Christians and Muslims but he does so for different reasons for Christians there is a salvific act that that this is god incarnate god coming in the ultimate expression of god's love for Muslims they find that hard to believe they believe that jesus is an expression of god's mercy for humanity but as a human being right uh-huh. what i what i find fascinating about the Muslim traditions is there are all kinds of stories about Jesus' teachings and healings that most Christians would find they would have no problem with. They, right, right. In yeah. fact they would be very interested to read about the story of the raising of Lazarus from a Muslim tradition. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating comparison. And if one allows oneself to simply think about what does this mean for Muslims? Uh, there are some important commonalities there. Hmm.
0: What about the, the view of God? Is there a difference between the Muslim view of God and the Christian view of God?
2: So this is the other, the other conversation point between Muslims and Christian, or at least some Christians. That is the concept of the one God, Tawheed in Islam, the unity of God, and of course the Trinity.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah.
2: And the Quran again makes explicit reference reference to Christians say not 3 but 1. And there's another particular passage that says they worship the th- the third of 3 which implies in some sense may, perhaps that there's a sense of tritheism that we worship three gods. Well, of course, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons. Right. But we've not Which been able- everybody to-
1: understands perfectly. Exactly. So
2: so from my perspective, when I bring up the Trinity in class, when we read these particular passages in the Quran that talk specifically about the Trinity, it's a great opportunity to ask my Christian students, how do you understand the Trinity? And how do you articulate that? Right? Mm-hmm. So it's clear that we've not been able to convince non Christians, particularly in this case Muslims about God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit since the the 7th century but that's primarily because I think we're still trying to convince ourselves in how yeah. we understand the Trinity and yeah. what that means yeah. for us. Um, I find it to be a great conversation starter. <laughs> yeah, bad. In a in a, yeah. in a good way and I don't think I don't think Christians need to 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 be worried about that. The Quran does make explicit reference against against that, that we shouldn't believe that. But it, it's an opportunity to express why we believe that. And most of us, most of us don't do a good job of that. So Islam provides a great opportunity for Christians to think through what they mean about Jesus as the Son of God and and God is triune in nature.
1: Just to return back to the practical a little bit, I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about your time in Egypt at uh, St. Andrew and what it was like for you being in a place that was uh, foreign and different and how how to do ministry in a place like that when perhaps uh, Christianity isn't the accepted norm, so to speak, in a way that uh, we experience it mostly here. I mean, it's not that everybody's a Christian here, but there's a certain priority we're given, I think, in a way that others don't experience. If you could share a little bit your own experience of encountering it from the other side, it might be helpful.
2: Yeah, thank you for that, that question. That's uh, that's a great question. Living living in the Middle East, and I, I, spe- I still spend a good bit of time in the Middle East, um, it's where my heart is in the middle east and i love taking students and people there egypt is a muslim majority country so that means that uh as you said here the dominant religion is privileged and uh this is in everything from your general uh the way that the day and the week is organized um to uh all other kinds of of social and cultural implications so for example there's no weekend in egypt uh Friday is the day of prayer, when Muslims gather in public to pray together. But it's not like Sunday. It's not like the day where, historically in the United States, where you had blue laws where everything shut down and people right. were supposed to people were supposed to go to church. Um, Friday is a normal day, but they shut down for Friday prayer in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and then they and then they return they return to work. So there's no real Sabbath day as as we would have it where people stop for a whole day. And part of that is because Muhammad himself was a merchant. Uh, Mecca was a mercantile community and all of Arabia was built on, on mercantile um, commerce. Mm-hmm. So people had to get to work, right? So you come sure. together for prayer and then you go back to work. That That's the common practice. And uh, centered around Friday, of course, is... The, the call to prayer that issues five times a day. Mo- Muslims are asked to pray five times a day, and you know that by when you hear the call to prayer. And so in a Muslim-majority country, five times a day, even in the middle of the night, you'll hear the call to prayer go off in public, and uh, that will remind everyone to, wherever they are, stop and pray. Now, as a, as a good a friend of mine, she's the daughter of a Coptic priest, grew up in Egypt, you know her the way she reflected on that was that was a helpful reminder for her to think about god mm-hmm. and even though she didn't pray like muslims the the call to prayer was a reminder to remember God. that's a good thing right right so um w- one can one can say that now li- living in the Middle East as an American not only provides uh Questions and quandaries about religion, but but culture in general. Uh, Middle Eastern culture is can be very different than ver- various forms of traditional American cultures, um, but those kinds of things are shared between Muslims and Christians in Egypt. So let me go back to the gender uh, issue. This Muslims traditionally segregate when it comes to prayer time in public so men will be in one place and women in another place right and that is primarily expressed because you are prostrating yourself you're bowing down and various parts of your body when you bow down come up and if you're (laughs) if you're behind somebody when that part comes up that may be distracting, especially if it's a member of uh, of a different persuasion than yourself. Right. So they, they the general explanation is, you know, you don't want to distract people um, now that takes a variety of different forms, uh, some better than others. But that same kind of segregation of sexes and worship occurs in the Middle East among uh, Catholics, uh, Orthodox and and. Many Protestants, especially in the villages. So I played a, a a nasty trick on my students one time. We were visiting a a, a Coptic Orthodox church, and the, I'd set up the visit, and the priest knew we were coming. Mass had already started, so I told the students, "I said, you go on in, sit down. Church has already started. The priest knows we're coming." Um, I, I have to make some phone calls for our next appointment. So I'll, I'll be right in. So these were seminary students, you know, they, they were comfortable in churches. They knew all about churches and what it means to be a welcoming church and everything. So they, young men and young women seminarians just kind of wandered into the church and they all kind of find their place and sat down. And it wasn't long before I noticed that the, the women seminarians started looking around and we getting very agitated and they started whispering to one another and they quickly realized that they were sitting on the wrong side, mm. that all of the women were on the other side. And, um, afterwards we debriefed that, you know, mm-hmm. we, I said, I'm sorry. That was a, that was a little trick I played on you that I wanted you to experience, uh, this here now, we were all forgiven because we were foreigners and we didn't know any better, right? So the right, priest, right, right. the priest was gracious and everything, but as students, they were horrified to find out that that they were, you know, in the wrong place. Uh, a a student of mine who was an Egyptian pastor in a village in Upper Egypt, his church, his church, his sanctuary, literally had a wall uh, down the main oh. aisle between the two sections, so that. Uh, the men would sit on one side and the women would sit on the other side, uh, so they wouldn't see each other, right? So that that's a that's a mm. cultural thing, and that was unnerving for many of my students and for many guests. Um, but culturally, that that's that's something that you have to you have to work through.
0: Right, right.
2: The the other thing that I can say about um, my experience uh, in the Middle East, living there, and I I. I'm sure this can resonate with people who have visited the Middle East uh, for any length of time. The, the hospitality of people is just incredible, knows no bounds. So in America, we often see images of the Middle East, and those images are normally based upon the latest bombing mm-hmm. or attack or incident that's taken place, which those are very real and those are very unfortunate. But um, that misses the depth and the heart of most people I know who are so hospitable and welcoming that it, it, in many ways it defies explanation. Here's a very good example of this. Um, A student came over from the United States and he Uh, was waiting in line to get through immigration. And he struck up a conversation with a man who was there, and this man found out that this was his first first visit to the the country. And the man was so delighted that this was a first-time visitor and this American was so excited about uh, coming and experiencing the country that the young man, the American, the next night found himself... At the wedding of this hmm. man, not only at the wedding, but he was at the head table wow. at the reception. Wow! He just met this American at at the uh, that that previous day, but was so delighted that this person was excited about visiting the country, and he was getting married. He couldn't do anything else, but invite him to the wedding you know so you you do with that what you will regarding wedding banquet stories (laughs) right (laughs) Right, Right. yeah, yeah, yeah but i'm telling you those things really happen and and um egyptians and jordanians and palestinians and lebanese and you know they will go to great lengths to extend hospitality that is just incredible
0: that's great. And this this conversation has been great. I know I've learned some stuff. My eyes have been opened a little bit more and I really want to thank you for that. I'm sure our listeners will benefit greatly from um this conversation today. You know, we're we're coming up on our time. We want to be respectful of your time here of sharing with us and and I want to appreciate uh you coming on. I'm I'm sure we'll we probably will like to have you on again sometime, uh, you know, as we go down the road here a little bit and and uh, continue to have this conversation. So that's all for good reason. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but any any uh, any last words that you would like to share with us? And if people ever want to, you know, get in contact with you as far as uh, u- utilizing you as a resource for their churches or just uh, anything else, uh, if you'd like to share that as well.
2: Yeah. Thank. Thanks for that. Um, I my my vocational call as a as a pastor in the ELCA has been uh, kind of on the frontiers of Christian Muslim encounter and relationships, and the Lutheran Church in America has had actually quite a long involvement and investment in this. It goes goes back to the nineteen late nineteen sixties early nineteen seventies, so we we Lutherans can be proud of that that we've had a sustained initiative within the church related to positive engagement with Muslim communities, both in the United States and around the world. And uh, so I would encourage um, congregations or pastors who are interested in uh, getting their congregations or learning more about the Muslim communities in their area or who just want to learn more more about Islam for positive reasons, that there are all kinds of resources. Um, I'm here at Hartford Seminary at the uh, Lutheran School of Chicago, uh, Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, they have the Center for Christian-Muslim Engagement. There's a number of people there. As I mentioned earlier, the Lutheran-Muslim consulta- consultative panel uh, has a variety of resources on the ELCA website there's all kinds of opportunities to engage positively with muslim communities and in, in 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 closing i would say this is not simply a matter uh that we as pastors or public leaders simply it, it's not something that we can take lightly as a as an interest or a sidebar for our congregations uh the the number of interfaith marriages in the United States is growing rapidly and, uh, immigration and immigration patterns is, is, as we know, changing the dynamics of America. So our neighbors, our colleagues and our family members, uh, will increasingly be from other faith traditions. So this is something that we all, um, uh, should take at heart, uh, and in, educate ourselves uh, about so that we can serve our own communities better. and I think that's the key for for me as a pastor. it's it's uh, witnessing to the love of God and serving in our communities that are represented by by Muslim individuals, families, and communities themselves. Awesome, great. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again and thank you, listener, for joining
0: us today. Uh, we are the two bald pastors helping you connect your faith with your life. And I am Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Cinebaldo. We want to thank you again. If you want to find out a little bit more about us, the Two Bald Pastors, you can go to our website, twobaldpastors.com, or find us on Facebook. So we are thankful for having uh, you um, on here today, and um, we'll see you again next week. Take care. Be blessed. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith. And this is where I get to edit out a little bit of silence. You get to edit
2: this out. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> now it's time for a commercial.
1: Are you thirsty? <laughs> Try water. Yeah, I want to get... <laughs>
2: Very good. Awesome. And how long how long will the edited version be? What? How long are your podcasts? It depends know. how long I
1: ramble. <laughs>